Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a lecture from Albert Moeller entitled Secularization and the Sexual Revolution. Listen to this and other lectures from Dr. Moeller, now available on Canon Plus. folks have taken matters into their own hands and brought their own chairs in at the back. Uh, for some reason, there seems to have been a lot of empty space. But we're glad you joined us, and others will be coming, uh, including one of our speakers shortly. <laughs> uh, we are glad to convene this morning on a matter of, uh, of shared importance, as we understand these issues, to present a challenge not only to the church, but in particular to evangelical theology. And so we're going to be looking at evangelical theology in the wake of a sexual revolution. I'm very glad to be joined today by Dr. Wayne Grudem and Dr. Tom Schreiner, and uh, Dr. Carl Truman will shortly be joining us as well. And uh, each will be speaking to a different theme in terms of this general subject. I will begin, but first I'm going to ask that we begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to pray that this discussion and all of our thoughts, all of our reflections, and all of our words would be edifying to your church and would be glorifying to you. We pray for your wisdom in these things, for we desperately need it. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. For some time, I've been involved in a major project on secularization, presented several papers to this society over the course of the last several years. Secularization provides something of a test case and a puzzlement for evangelical theology. In one sense, it it affirms our general apprehensions and perceptions about the larger culture in a way that brings sociological analysis to what we detect to be a theological reality with deep spiritual ramifications. But increasingly, it has become clear that the issue of secularization is also tied explicitly, inextricably, to the sexual revolution taking place around us. In the face of the sexual revolution, the Christian church in the West now faces a set of challenges that exceeds anything that it has experienced of a similar magnitude in the past. This is a revolution of ideas, one that is transforming the entire moral structure of meaning in life. These challenges would be vexing enough for any generation. But the contours of our current challenge have to be understood over against the affecting reality for virtually everything on the American landscape and furthermore in the West. This revolution, like all revolutions, takes few prisoners. In other words, it demands total acceptance of its revolutionary claims and the affirmation of its aims. This is the problem now faced by Christians who are committed to uncompromising faithfulness to the Bible as the word of God and to the gospel as the only message of salvation. The scale and scope of this challenge are made clear in an argument made by British theologian Theo Hobson. As Hobson acknowledges, churches have always faced difficult moral issues and they have muddled through. Some will argue that the challenge of the sexual revolution and the normalization of homosexuality is nothing new or unusual. He says, and I quote, until quite recently, I would have agreed. But he said, it becomes ever clearer that the issue of homosexuality really is different, end quote. Why is such a challenge to Christianity different? In this case, is is homosexuality a particularly vexing case? 
Hobson suggests that the first challenge is what he recognizes as the either-or quality of the new morality. I agree with him that there really is no middle ground in terms of the church's engagement with these hard and urgent questions. Churches will either affirm the legitimacy of same-sex relationships and behaviors, or they will not. And the churches that do not will take a stand on the basis of a claim that God has revealed a morality to his human creatures in Holy Scripture. The second factor Hobson suggests is what he calls the sheer speed of the homosexual cause's success. As he describes it, and I quote, something that was assumed for centuries to be unspeakably immoral has emerged as an alternative form of life, an identity that merits legal protection. The demand for gay equality, he says, has basically ousted traditionalist sexual morality from the moral high ground, end quote. That is a profoundly important point. Hobson is arguing that this revolution, unlike any other, has actually turned the tables on Christianity, specifically in Western civilization. The Christian church has always enjoyed the moral high ground, understood to be the guardian of what is right and righteous, at least in Western societies. But what we are seeing now is a fundamental change. Hobson is arguing that this moral revolution, having turned the tables on Christianity, now robs the Christian church of the moral high ground it had previously claimed. The situation is fundamentally reversed. For the first time in the history of Western civilization, Christianity appears to be on the underside of morality, and those who hold the biblical teachings concerning human sexuality are now, to use Hobson's word, ousted from the position of moral high ground. Hobson also rightly observes that this vast change in attitudes towards same-sex relationships and behaviors is not simply, to use his term, the waning of a taboo. He explains, and I quote, It is not just a case of a practice losing its aura of immorality, as with premarital sex or illegitimacy. Instead, the case for homosexual equality takes the form of a moral crusade. Those who want to uphold the old attitude are not just dated moralists, as is the case with those who want to uphold the old attitude to premarital sex or illegitimacy. They are accused of moral deficiency. The old taboo concerning this practice does not disappear, but bounces back at those who seek to uphold it. Such a sharp turnaround is, he said, without parallel in moral history. Hobson's main point is that homosexuality, quote, has the strange power to turn the moral tables, end quote. And so what was previously understood to be immoral is now celebrated as a moral good. As a result, the Christian church's historic teachings on homosexuality, shared by the vast majority of the citizens of the West, until at least very recently, is now understood to be a relic of the past and a repressive force that must be eradicated. This explains why the challenge of the moral revolution threatens to shake the very foundations of Christianity in the United States and far beyond. And yet, even as we understand this revelation, this revolution to be a new thing, its roots are not all that recent. As a matter of fact, the church has seen the sexual revolution taking place turn by turn for the better part of the last century. What now becomes clear is that most Christians vastly underestimated the challenge this sexual revolution would present. The new sexual morality did not emerge from a vacuum. Massive intellectual changes at the level of worldview over the last 200 years set the stage for the revolution in which we currently found it, find ourselves. We are living in times rightly, if awkwardly, described as the late modern age. 
Just a decade ago, we spoke of the postmodern age as if modernity had given way to something fundamentally new. Like every new and self-declared epoch, the postmodern age was declared to be a form of liberation. Whereas the modern age announced itself as a secular liberation from a Christian authority that operated on claims of divine revelation, the postmodern age was proposed as a liberation from the great secular authorities of reason and rationality. The postmodern age, it was claimed, would liberate humanity by operating with an official incredulity towards all meta-narratives. In other words, postmodernity denied all of the big narratives that had previously shaped the culture and specifically an end to the Christian fundamental narrative. And yet postmodern thought eventuated, as all intellectual movements must, in its own meta-narrative. Then it just passed away. We still speak of postmodern thinking, and we rightly still speak of postmodern architecture and postmodern art, but we are speaking for the most part of a movement that has given way and given up. In retrospect, the postmodern age was not a new age at all. It was only an alarm announced at the end of modernity and the beginning of what is now called the late modern age. Modernity has not disappeared. It has actually grown stronger, but at the same time, it has grown more complex. The claim that humanity can only come into its own and overcome various invidious forms of discrimination by secular liberation is not new, but it is now mainstream. It is now so common to the cultures of Western societies that it need not be announced and often is not even noticed. Those born into the cultures of late modernity simply breathe these assumptions as they breathe the atmosphere, and their worldviews are radically realigned even if their language retains elements of the old worldview. The background to this great intellectual shift is the secularization of Western societies. Modernity has brought many cultural goods, but it has also, as predicted, brought a radical change in the way citizens of Western societies think, feel, relate, and reason. The Enlightenment's liberation of reason at the expense of revelation was followed by a radical anti-supernaturalism that can scarcely be exaggerated. Looking at Europe and Great Britain, it is clear that the modern age has alienated an entire civilization from its Christian roots, along with Christian moral and intellectual commitments. This did not happen all at once, of course. Though the change came very quickly in nations such as France and Germany, we note the Scandinavian nations now register almost imperceptible levels of Christian belief. Increasingly, the same is true of Great Britain. Sociologists now speak openly of the death of Christian Britain, and evidence of Christian decline is abundant. Some prophetic voices recognized the scale and scope of the intellectual changes taking place in the West. Just over 30 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote of a shift in a worldview away from one that was at least vaguely Christian in the memory of the society towards a completely different way of looking at the world. This new worldview, he argued, was based on the idea that final reality was impersonal matter or energy shaped into its present form by impersonal chance. Significantly, Schaefer observed that Christians in his time did not see this new worldview as taking the place of the Christian worldview that had previously dominated Northern Europe and American cultures, either by personal conviction or by cultural impression. These two worldviews, one generally Christian and the other barely deistic, stood in complete antithesis to one another in content and also in moral results. These contrary ways of seeing the world would lead to very different sociological and governmental results specifically including the conception and implementation of law. In 1983, just a few years after Schaefer made that contribution, Carl F. H. Henry described the situation and future possibilities 
in terms of a strict dichotomy. And I quote, If modern culture is to escape the oblivion that has engulfed the earlier civilizations of man, the recovery of the will of the self-revealed God in the form of justice and law is crucially imperative. Return to pagan misconceptions of divinized rulers or a divinized cosmos or a quasi-Christian conception of natural law or natural justice will bring inevitable disillusionment. Not all pleas for transcendent authority will truly serve God or man. By aggrandizing law and human rights and welfare to their own sovereignty, all manner of earthly leaders eagerly preempt the role of the divine and obscure the living God of scriptural revelation. The alternatives are clear, said Henry. We return to the God of the Bible or we perish in a pit of lawlessness. Writing even earlier, Carl Henry had already identified the single greatest intellectual obstacle to a cultural return to the God of the Bible. In 1976, in the first volume of his sixth volume, God, Revelation, and Authority, Henry began with this line, and I quote, No fact of contemporary Western life is more evident than the growing distrust of final truth and its implacable questioning of any sure word. This obstacle to the return of the authority of the Christian worldview is really a part of a vicious cycle that begins with the departure from at least a cultural impression of God's revealed authority. Leaving a Christian worldview leads to a distrust of all final truth and a rejection of universal authority, which then blockades the way back to the God of the Bible. In his very important Massey lectures delivered in 1991, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor spoke of what he described as the malaise of modernity. The modern age, he argued, is marked by two great intellectual moves. The first intellectual move is a pervasive individualism. The second is the reduction of all public discourse to the authority of mere instrumental reason. The rise of modern individualism comes at the cost of rejecting all other moral authorities. Taylor explained, quote, Modern freedom was won by our breaking loose from older moral horizons. This required the toppling of all hierarchical authorities and their established moral orders. In Taylor's words, quote, People used to see themselves as part of a larger order. Modern freedom came about through the discrediting of such orders, end quote. The primacy of instrumental reason means the elimination of the old order and its specifically theological and teleological moral order. As Taylor explains, I quote again, No doubt sweeping away the old orders has immensely widened the scope of instrumental reason. Once society no longer has a sacred structure, once social arrangements and modes of action are no longer grounded in the order of things or in the will of God, they are in a sense up for grabs. They can be redesigned with their consequences for the happiness or well-being of individuals as our goal. End quote. More recently, Taylor has written the greatest work yet completed on the secular reality of our times. In a secular age, he describes three successive sets of intellectual conditions. In the first, associated with the pre-modern age of antiquity and then the medieval synthesis, it was impossible not to believe. There was simply no intellectual alternative to theism in the West. There was no alternative set of explanations for the world and its operations or for moral order itself. All that changed with the arrival of modernity. In the modern age, it became possible not to believe a secular alternative to Christian theism emerged as a real intellectual choice. As a matter of fact, choice now ruled the intellectual field. As Peter Berger famously observed decades ago, this is the so-called heretical imperative. 
the imperative to choose one's worldview. The third set of intellectual conditions identified by Charles Taylor is identified with late modernity and our own intellectual epoch. For most people living in the context of self-conscious late modernity, it is now impossible to believe. Now, that means that in terms especially of the intellectual elites and the culture formative sectors of society, theism is actually not an available worldview, if not personally, then at least culturally. Significantly, Taylor pinpoints this unbelief as a lack of cognitive commitment to a self-existent, self-revealing God. Secularization, he argues, is not about rejecting all religion. He urges that people in the current hyper-secularized culture in America often consider themselves to be religious or spiritual. Secularization, he argues, is about belief in a personal God, or in particular, the now absent belief in a personal God, one who holds and exerts authority. He describes the secular age as deeply cross-pressured, to use his term, in its expression of religion and yet its rejection of the personal authority of God. The big issue here is binding moral authority. Christians are the intellectual outlaws under the current intellectual conditions. Entering a discussion on the basis of a theistic or theological claim is to break a cardinal rule of late modernity by moving from a precip by moving from a proposition or question to a command and law and authority and to do so in the context of a culture now explicitly secularized and a culture that either reduces such claims to something below a genuine theistic claim or rejects them to court. Secularization in America has been attended by a moral revolution without precedent and without end game. The cultural engines of progress driving towards personal autonomy and fulfillment will not stop until the human being is completely self-defining. This progress requires the explicit rejection of Christian morality for the project of human liberation. By the way, I would add, not only Christian morality, but any biblical anthropology as well. The story of the rise of secularism is a stunning intellectual and moral revolution. It defies exaggeration. We must recognize that it is far more pervasive than we might want to believe, for this intellectual revolution has changed the worldview of even those who believe themselves to be opposed to it. I think the most brilliant part of Charles Taylor's work is how he documents the fact that even amongst those who believe, they believe differently than those living in previous epochs believe. That gets back somewhat to Peter Berger's notion of the heretical imperative, where in the context of choosing one's worldview, that's a fundamentally different way of believing than when one believed simply because there was no other available worldview or explanation for the world and its operations. <clears throat> Everything is now reduced to choice, and choice is, as Taylor reminds us, central to the moral project of late modernity as the project of individual authenticity. And by the way, he also argues that so-called traditional believers are not so traditional in most senses as they believe themselves to be. Because in the context of late modernity, they're even choosing the tradition with which they identify, which was not an option to previous generations. As he explains the project of modernity, quote, there is a certain way of being human that is my way, speaking again of this main ethical mandate of authenticity. He says, quote, I am called to live upon the earth to live my life in this way 
and not an imitation of anyone else's life. But this notion, he says, gives a new importance to being true to myself. If I am not, I actually miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me, end quote. Thus, Taylor explains this modern imperative. The pressing question is this. How can any sustainable moral order survive this scale of intellectual revolution? We hear in today's intellectual and ideological chorus the refrains of Karl Marx's threat and promise as stated in the Communist Manifesto. All that is solid melts into air. The melting is everywhere around us. Even as our own century is plowing new ground of moral revolution, the fact remains that the seeds were planted in the 20th century. This point is well made by Ethel Person when she writes, quote, Over the course of the 20th century, sexual liberation has limped and lurched, but in a direction that has transformed the way most of us regard our bodies and our sexual lives. Wide era-to-era swings between sexual expression or sexual suppression and sexual exuberance have been noted by historians of sex. However, the current changes go beyond the ideologies of sexual liberation to include altered ideas about masculinity and femininity, heterosexuality and homosexuality. These changes, she writes, in attitudes and behavior are of such magnitude and appear to be so irreversible, so destined to leave their mark on subsequent eras, that we are justified in calling this, speaking of the 20th century, the sexual century. The question remains, how did all this happen? As already noted, the sexual revolution did not emerge from a vacuum. Modern societies created a context for moral revolution that had never been available in intellectual terms before. In other words, certain cultural conditions had to prevail in order for the revolution to gain the traction it needed to succeed. One of the things we need to note is that we are looking at an explicitly cosmopolitan revolution. Modernity and modernization have brought urbanization and that brought increased numbers of people now to living into cities, and the cities shaped the culture. As odd as it may seem, even as the city is a concentration of human beings, it also offers an unprecedented opportunity for anonymity. A pastor in one of the major cities in the world told me some time ago that as young people flood into a city, he said they, they very quickly find out who they are sexually. And he said it is because everything becomes instantly available to them and if they do not avail themselves of all of these things, they're making a very specific moral choice. In other words, they're making a statement about sexual identity either by joining into certain activities or by refusing to do so in a way that was not true of previous generations. This cosmopolitan reality changes the moral landscape or the context for the development of moral selves. The same period also saw the weakening of the family unit as new moral voices emerged as both attractive and authoritative in the lives of modern people. For some younger Americans, this has meant the arrival on the college campus, meaning that the professor in the classroom presents a clear alternative to the morality that had been taught by parents in the home. This was true as early as the 1930s, intellectual historians mark in the United States, and it is now understood to be the expectation on American college and university campuses. Some time ago, I was looking at a, an article by a professor from Northwestern University who uh, made the statement that the, uh, the red states are reproducing far more than the blue states, which would eventually threaten the hegemony of the elite universities. But he said to his fellow blue state tenured faculty in uh, prestigious universities, he says, don't worry, we will let the breeders breed them. 
and then they will eventually drive their SUVs to our campus, drop them off at the curb, and then they are ours. At the same time, the secularization of these societies and institutions meant that Christianity and its authorities, specifically the Bible, would be relegated to voices with less and less authority and cultural traction as secularization worked its way through the larger culture. Technological advances also fueled the sexual revolution. Pornographers, for example, have taken advantage of every new technology from the printing press to the latest digital advances. Of course, the most technological achievement for the sexual morality was the arrival, the most important of those achievements, was the arrival of contraceptives, but also the arrival of modern antibiotics. Put, put bluntly, so long as sex between a man and a woman implied the likelihood of pregnancy, there was a certain check on premarital or extramarital sexual activity. Once the pill arrived, with all of its promises of reproductive control, a biological check on sexual immorality that had shaped human existence from the time of Adam and Eve forward was almost instantaneously removed. The sexual revolution could not have taken place without the separation of sex and procreation and that with the arrival of effective, cheap, and available contraceptives. Whereas many scholars recognize the importance of the new contraceptive technologies in the sexual revolution, fewer scholars have noted the that the sexual revolution would not have progressed at the same speed without the emergence of modern antibiotics. This is due to the fact that one major check on sexual immorality throughout human history, well documented even by the ancients, was disease. As Emory University economist Andrew Francis has observed, quote, it's a common assumption that the sexual revolution began with the permissive attitudes of the 1960s and the development of contraceptives like the birth control pill. The evidence, he says, however, strongly indicates that the widespread use of penicillin leading to a rapid decline of syphilis during the 1950s is what actually launched the modern sexual era, end quote. This is a very important observation. A review of medical literature will reveal that the vast reduction in the cases of syphilis recorded in the 1950s indicate not that Americans were engaged in less illicit sexual activity, but that they were now aided and abetted by penicillin removing the horrifying effects of syphilis from the moral equation. Clearly, we do not want to go back to an age before antibiotics. We are thankful for life-saving drugs and medical breakthroughs. We certainly do not reject all that modernity has brought. At the same time, Christians must recognize that every new technology brings new ethical and moral challenges and often unintended consequences as well. The sexual revolution could not have taken place without the fundamental intellectual change that would lead Americans to believe that a revolution in sexual morality was not only right, but inevitable. One of the major assists in making this argument was the arrival of experts in sexuality who argued that science would prove the need for such a moral revolution. The most important aspect, uh, the most important figures in this part of the revolution included Alfred C. Kinsey in his two books, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, published respectively in 1948 and 1953. Kinsey became one of the major agents of moral revolution. As we know, Kinsey's research was fraudulent from the start. For one thing, he drew his research sample from those who eagerly volunteered for his studies, including a sizable percentage of men who were in prison. No credible researcher would give any credence whatsoever to the statistical claims Kinsey made concerning sexual behavior, but the media do. The actual text of Kinsey's book was far less important to the sexual revolutionaries than the cultural effect of the two books put together. 
Those who read the book carefully would have come to the, that is especially the first one, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. Those who read it carefully would have come to the horrifying recognition that Kinsey was tilting his research towards the population most likely to be living outside of the moral mainstream. Furthermore, a closer look at the material and the footnotes in the books indicates that Kinsey was himself involved in perverse behavior and the documented uh, research in his, uh, in his tables included the sexual abuse of children and even infants. As many Christian churches continued to maintain the clear teachings of Scripture and even as many pastors and theologians defended institutional Christianity and thus defended the Christian moral tradition and biblical authority, there were those within institutional Christianity who did everything possible to join the sexual revolution. The sexual revolutionaries found assistance in the form of Joseph Fletcher in his book Situation Ethics, published in 1966. Fletcher, at one time, professor of Christian social ethics at the Episcopal Theological School at Cambridge, argued for a new understanding of Christian ethics that he called situation ethics. In his words, quote, the situationist enters into every decision-making situation fully armed with the ethical maxims of his community and its heritage, and he treats them with respect as illuminators of his problems. Just the same, he is prepared to, in any situation, compromise them or even set them aside in the situation if love seems better served by doing so, end quote. Thus, Fletcher argued that the Bible and Christian sexual morality could serve as a guide to moral decision-making, but that the Bible's teachings should be, set should be set aside if, in his words, quote, love is better served by doing so. Fletcher, in 1970, actually told a group of Christian ethicists, I am prepared to argue in the utmost seriousness that Christian obligation calls for lies and adultery and fornication and theft and promise-breaking, breaking, and killing sometimes, depending on the situation. Fletcher has clearly left his own indelible mark in liberal Protestant theology, but so did others, such as Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Paul Tillich's own sexual misbehavior has been now very well documented by his widow, first of all. But uh, they also are now understood to have had a massive influence on cultural elites far beyond the reach of most theologians. Reinhold Niebuhr, by the way, represents a very interesting case. I'm simply going to skip over math material here. Reinhold Niebuhr was very offended by Paul Tillich's personal sexual immorality, but he would not hold to a binding moral code based in Scripture that would have clearly identified that as immorality. And so even as Paul Tillich was the lead transgressor on the Union Theological Seminary faculty in terms of the sexual revolution, Reinhold Niebuhr represented the, uh, the aiding and abetting of that sexual revolution by the undermining of any comprehensive moral uh, system based upon Christianity. John A.T. Robinson, famous unbelieving bishop of the Church of England in his book Honest to God, similarly continued this revolution. Harvey Cox of the Harvard Divinity School, famous for his book The Secular City, once said, quote, we must avoid giving a simple yes or no to the answer of premarital chastity, end quote. Now, he said that back in the 1960s. And as any pastor knows, if on a question like that you cannot say yes or no, you are saying yes. Philip Kitcher makes the very important observation that the sexual revolution wouldn't have happened with what he calls, without what he calls the withering of vice. And that withering of vice took the form of the fact that very clear understandings of morality related to sexual behavior disappeared. But what Kitcher also understands is that the withering of vice could not have happened without the withering of theism that came before. 
The modern or postmodern quest for sexual emancipation cannot be neutral when it comes to the teachings of the Bible and when it comes to the Christian moral tradition. It must not only be revised, as was the claim at the midpoint of the 20th century and even in the 1960s, it must be supplanted. In terms of understanding the challenge we now face, I begin my most recent book, We Cannot Be Silent, with a quotation from Flannery O'Connor, who says that we must push back as hard as the age is pressing against us. To understand what we were up against is at least part of the problem, part of the challenge. To understand the roots of the moral revolution requires some very careful thinking. And the acknowledgement that the sexual revolution could not have happened without secularization. And that secularization could not progress without producing the sexual revolution. I now turn to Professor Carl Truman for the second paper. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Al Mohler collection now on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.